Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, and it's an exciting time to be talking about Texas quail, both Bob White and scaled quail because it's nesting season. And with us to help us do that is always Dr. Dale Rollins. Hello, Dale. Hey, Gary, how are you today? This is a great month to be talking quail because what's happening on the ground? It's, and you said on the ground, which is key. It's again, I often use the word anxious, which means there's some anxiety. Uh, this is our month, June is typically our month of the greatest nesting activity. And I like to say that we either make or break a quail season with a June hatch. So yeah, I have a lot of eyes right now and I hope to be hearing reports, you know, that, well, I saw my first little crop of bumblebees, <laughs> those little chicks that are, that's generically, they call them bumblebees. But that's a real challenge for a quail. Again, man, you, you hit it when you sit on the ground. A quail nest is a bird nest on the ground. When I say a bird nest on the ground, what does that mean? A windfall to the one that finds it. And so a quail has so many enemies that literally as a quail hunter and somebody studies quail, the more you study them, the more you say, how do we ever have enough quail exactly. to hunt like we did in 2016? The stars have to align just perfectly for that to happen. And one of the things, uh, and again, Gary, you've helped out with Bob White Brigade over the years, and you know that the first thing that I have those kids doing is they're sitting there before a cadaver, and we're learning about anatomy, and they're beginning to dissect or do a necropsy right. on this bird. Right. And in the background, you hear the music playing, Leonard Skinner's Freebird. And I ask them to think about that, and what is the refrain of Freebird, and that is, and this bird you cannot change. And that's a very powerful principle in quail management. And we all, as managers, we always have to be thinking about that. You know, wouldn't it be great? I mean, Texas A&M is heralded for a lot of their genetic research right. and being able to clone a sheep and different things like this. If they could just put two inch canine teeth on those quail, <laughs> now we'd have something to talk about there. Or if they could get these quail to nest 40 feet up in a pine tree, exactly, that'd be great, but they don't. We can't change that. They're gonna nest on the ground. They're gonna be vulnerable to a lot of things. And as managers, we have to address that. We have to try to tip the odds away from the predator and into the favor of the quail. So that's, that's one of our tasks as managers. Turkeys don't know how good they have it, right? Uh, you know, I often say that a, a turkey, how, well, let me ask you this. How many nights does a turkey spend on the ground? Zero, I would think. Well, no, that hen's got to incubate those eggs That's for true. about 28 days. Okay. And those poults are going to be about 10 days of age, and then they can hop up in a tree. So maybe 40 days. Very good. How many nights does a Bob White spend on the ground? That's oh, on the ground every day. Every night, yeah. And so as a result of that, again, they're, and because they're smaller size, they're vulnerable to even a larger list of enemies than what the wild turkey has. So... Again, that's just something we have to accept, and this bird we cannot change. What are our friend the blue quails doing right now? Are they on nest as well? They're nesting. In fact, I'm going to say the blue quail might have got a little bit of a head start this year. Um, back in March, I was on some property in, uh, out in Crane County mm -hmm. and already beginning to see pairing take place. So I'm hoping that the blues got off to an early start. And the, the keys to a successful nesting season are nest early and nest often. 
So it, that was one of the voting mantras in Chicago or somewhere, wasn't it, I think? Uh, same kind of thing. We want to be able to put those birds into nesting condition. We want to bless them and say, go forth and procreate. And so we start that really in May, but our peak hatch is going to be in June. With all the factors and all the enemies of quail and their nest on the ground, it's a wonder we have any nests survive at all. What, what's your research shown in terms of survival ability? Well, let me first say that how many days does it take for a quail to hatch a nest? I don't know. Well, the incubation period is 23 days. You say, well, 23, no. Those eggs just didn't pop out just like that and they were all of a sudden there. It takes about 18 to 20 days to lay those eggs. She'll typically lay anywhere from 12 to 16 eggs. And then she's got to incubate them for 23 days. So you get about 40 to 45 days invested in a nest that hatches. Wow. That's a long time if you've got as many enemies as a quail has. So what we call hatch rate or nest success, what percentage of the nests on the ground will hatch nationwide is about 28%. 28%. Now we do better than that at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. Our averages are between 50 and 60%. That's not because we're doing intensive predator control, it's because we have outstanding nesting habitat across the landscape. And so that's our first line of defense against predation. Because the more nesting uh, opportunities there are out there, the fewer chances for a predator to be successful, right? It's, the odds are in your favor. It's just like the shell game at the carnival. At the shell game, there's three shells, and one of them's got a pee under it. Who's in favor, you as the participant or the carny? Well, the carny's got two to one. He's going to beat you most of the time. On the landscape, on the back 40, it's that same principle. It's called thimble rigging. And the, the principle is that the more places I can hide my nest, the more I can diffuse the effect of the impact of predation. So through some of our work, we think that about having about 300 suitable nest sites per acre, 300, now, if you think about the infield of a softball diamond, mm -hmm. 60 by 60, that's about a tenth of an acre. I want 25 to 30 suitable bunch grass sites, something like a little blue stem, about the size of a basketball, within that infield. And that says, if I've got that across the landscape, then I've done about as much as I can do to dissuade that skunk or that raccoon or coyote or whatever his potential to find my nest. With so few nests perhaps being successful, I guess it's important that there's a lot of eggs in those nests to raise the chances of survival of sustainable populations. Well, we again, quail have got a lot of enemies. The, de the deck is stacked against them, but they do have some uh, they have some weapons in their armada too. And one of them is the ability to reproduce rapidly when conditions are good. Those nests, like I said, typically early nests will have as many as 16 eggs in it. The most I've ever seen is 22 eggs. Okay, that's a pretty good wad of eggs for a bird to be able to incubate and so forth. And then as we go through the summer, so yes, we can have some nests happening in August, September. Mm -hmm. In South Texas, they've recorded nests in every month of the year but January, longer growing season. But as we go through the nesting season, the clutch size, the number of eggs becomes smaller and smaller. So we might start out with 16 in May. If we have a nest in August, it might be eight. What happens if a quail loses her nest? Will she start over? She'll begin again? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. We, that's re-nesting. Re there's always the, the observation, the comment about, do quail really raise two broods or more per year? And for the most part, that's people seeing a late nesting attempt, like in August. They might have seen some chicks about the 4th of July, and then about Labor Day, they see chicks. Mm -hmm. Did that hen raise two broods, or was that a late nesting attempt? 
And the answer is yes, one of the two. And by the fact that we've got radio mark birds, and again, we know that hen number 316 sat on these eggs, and then she gave them off to daddy, right? gave them off to her boyfriend, and then she goes and finds another quail to mate with. So the, some of the TV shows of my time in the 1960s were Ozzie and Harriet. And so we used to always think that Ozzie and Harriet, that was the, the lifestyle of a Bob White. You had the, the cock and the hen, and they were totally faithful. They were yes. monogamous, just like Ozzie and Harriet. Well, as we began to study these birds in the AT era, what I call the after telemetry era, again, we could really fine tune, learn more about their love life and so forth. And we learned that uh, certainly some hens are gypsy hens. Uh, some of them have a, uh, the term just called a flexible mating strategy. I, I tell people they've been watching too many of today's soap operas and TV shows. So uh, we have hens that will, again, uh, lay nest number one, put the rooster on them. He'll, he may incubate them and raise that brood while she's off. We like, we like to see that. I mean, yes. I don't recognize that as morals for a good human lifestyle. But uh, in the quail world, that really helps it us helps. overcome some situations. Weather plays a factor. Uh, when you've got, I guess, extreme weather conditions, that nest is just as vulnerable to weather as it could be from predation, I suspect. So weather, I guess you're looking at weather patterns, right? The El Ninos and El Ninas. If there's uh, one of the unifying principles of quail management in semi-arid ranges like here in Texas and West Texas, uh, water is everything. You know, I mean, uh, just add water is what we say in West Texas because and just like this year, our country looks great because of all that rain we got last October, we're in an El Nino weather pattern. So we've been talking about this El Nino La Nina for maybe what the last 10 years or right, so. Right. And the climatologists, in my opinion, have nailed it. You know, they're pretty good with their forecast, the long range forecast of that. We're predicted to be an El Nino forecast through the end of this winter. And that's great for us because in West Texas, El Nino equals El Greeno. And that means it's good things going to happen for wildlife, good things going to happen for farming, good things going to happen for ranching because we're going to increase our annual rainfall. Uh, the La Nina phase is, uh, is the drought. And again, if we want to think back to the near recent history of 2011, mm. that was a severe La Nina, worst recorded drought in Texas history. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're, as quail people, we're much higher on El Ninos than we are La Ninas. We're in June and we're looking for good nesting cover. It's probably too late to create that nesting cover from a habitat standpoint. That work begins well before then to establish that. Help us with some of those thoughts. That importance of residual nesting cover, residual grasses, and the, the prototype quail nest is in something, a basketball-sized clump of little blue stem, a perennial grass. And we want to have the vegetation left over from last year. That provides the concealment. That's what a quail hen is looking for. That's the house she's looking for. Uh, there's a lot of other things that can satisfy that. Our primary research, our primary nesting sites at the research ranch are silver blue stem, which mm -hmm. is cousin of little blue stem. But uh, we also find that quail use prickly pear. A lot. Really? Yes. And so a lot of people don't like prickly pear, but I tell people as a student of quail, I realize that. In fact, I even wrote a cadence about that for the Bob White Brigade, and it goes like this. Many ranchers do declare they've got too much prickly pear. It's a thorny plant that they despise, but it sure looks good through a quail hen's eyes <laughs> because nests that are located in prickly pear survive at about twice the rate of those that nest in grass. Interesting. Offers some mechanical protection against right. some of your nest enemies. Right. And so having 
prickly pear. And no, I can't tell you exactly how much we need. I'm just saying some prickly pear is good. Prickly pear can become uh, obnoxious. And uh, so we, we recognize that it can be treated and needs to be treated in certain areas. But uh, don't see it as always a pariah because it does have some good benefits. Can you create nesting habitat or is it a natural function that you're enhancing, uh, that you're managing to maximize? Or can you uh, bring in nesting habitat through uh, plantings of certain grasses? Well, you can't bring in instant gratification. In other words, if I'm low on nesting cover, and I would say as I've traveled West Texas over the last 30 years, the common weak link in the quail equation is nesting cover. Okay. Dry weather, overstocking, whatever. So there's nothing that I can say, well, I recognize that now and I want to clean up my act and make it better this year. It's going to take you at least a year. Grazing deferment, you got to be able to plan that a year in advance. You can do things, though, again, by not being too mad at prickly pear and some of those more drought-resistant nesting refuges which are very important to quail. So always measure twice and saw once. If you've ever done any carpenter work, you recognize the importance of that. Think about it before you go in there and change it. There are some minor species. You mentioned the, the big uh, types of plants that really lend themselves to efficient nesting habitat, but there's some other species out there that might have a role, right? In 2015, again, that was a year we, saw, we had really good nesting at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, and yes, the quail not only selected the silver blue stem of the prickly pear, but they selected some things that theretofore I would not have given much credit for nesting. Texas wintergrass being one of those spear grasses, another name for that. And I think the lesson there is, as Val Lehman, who was a biologist for the King Ranch back during that 50s and 60s, he basically said, described nesting cover as you want your house to blend in with the neighborhood. So if all you've got is Texas wintergrass and yet if there's one clump of little blue stem out there, if you build your nest in there, that's going to be like building a 6,000 square foot house in the ghetto. It's going to be the source of a lot of attention and scrutiny. So you want it to be able to just blend in. You don't want to necessarily a super house in a poor neighborhood. You want to be able to have something that, again, diffuses the predator's search image to be able to find your nest. And if you have a softball in the truck, that might help, right? Back uh, about 20 years ago, I developed what I call the softball habitat evaluation technique, SHET. Be careful with your enunciation. The, the softball technique, one of the components of that is to nesting cover. And again, with the softball, you think about the softball diamond. Infield is 60 by 60, 3,600 square feet. So that's less than a tenth of an acre. Yes. And I'd like to have 25 to 30 suitably sized bunch grasses, the size of home plate. So there's a lot of different things that I work into that softball analogy, but I like to brag on the fact that it's cowboy approved. About four or five years ago at a program, a cowboy walks up to me and he said, he's obviously working for an absentee landowner who thought quail were pretty important. He said, until you came up with that softball deal, said I never fully understood what the boss was talking about. He says, now I do. So I'm very proud of that. How do you measure nesting success? Uh, is it uh, percentage of hatches that the eggs uh, hatch? Is it number of uh, young birds that you see when you begin to measure population? How do you determine the success of that year's season? Well, again, we've got radio marked birds. If you depended upon your ability to find a quail's nest, I can tell you, you wouldn't have very large sample size. Quail are experts at hiding their nest. When we put these radio collars on the hen 
if we've heard the signal from the same area for three times in consecutive days, mm-hmm. we, we conclude that hen is nesting. So I turn it over to what I call my nest specialist, somebody who's very cryptic and very stealthy. And that individual will then be able to monitor that hen's nest and say how many eggs it had in it and then how many have hatched kind of thing. Typically about 90% of the eggs in a nest hatch, okay. but only, like I said, uh, nationally only about 30% of the, of the nests are successful. Uh, our data at the research ranch, again, we're proud of the fact that typically we have 50 to 60%. One year we had 70% nest survival. So we're making the most out of what we got. Knowing that this is the month in which a lot of nests are active, should landowners be considering maybe some shifts in their management strategy, their grazing rotation, their mowing, things like that, that could play a part? Well, they ought to stay off the mower for one reason. Uh, when I worked for Oklahoma State, the uh, weed control specialist up there said there's really only two times you should run a shredder or a bush hog or mower. One is when you want to look good. You know, if you have the paradigm that we want my pasture to look like my back my front yard, the second time is if your wife's mad at you and you just need to get it on the tractor or whatever. <laughs> but otherwise, and, and that's not a big issue for us west of here, we don't, we don't get out and recreationally mow like folks maybe east of I-35 might yes. do. But yeah, the brush hog is not a very friendly tool for quail nesting. As far as grazing, again, grazing is a two-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Grazing can do some things good for us. And I often ask landowners, ranchers, I ask the question, do cows and quail compete? And I said, no. Cows eat grass and quail eat seeds and insects. Well, I would argue that cows and quail do compete, but they're, they're competing for grass. Cows eat it, quail need it for nesting. So again, there's that balancing act about what's my stocking rate, what's right. my nesting conditions. If I've got super great nesting conditions and I'm in a wet year like this year, I can tolerate more grazing than if I'd have gone back again to 2017 when I didn't have much grass and much rain. I've got to be able to adjust that. So from a rancher standpoint, that can be difficult, right. especially if you've got a cow-calf operation. So you don't want to dip into your breeding stock. And as a result, too much of our country is overstocked. If, uh, if a, and I always credit a cowboy with bird dogs mm-hmm. or a rancher with bird dogs as a quail's best friend. Now, why would I say that? Because if a rancher has bird dogs, he's thinking of his vocation with his cattle and he's thinking of his avocation with his bird dogs and he's gonna be cognizant of what those trade-offs are. Right. Uh, if it's somebody that's not interested in uh, hunting and not interested in quail, well again, that grass is, that's a commodity that I'm gonna graze and, and uh, graze to the max kind of thing. That is not a good recipe for good quail habitat. So we gotta be cognizant of those trade-offs and be able to adjust our stocking rates hopefully a year in advance okay. for what our conditions are. You always talk about scale of management and that quail need uh, certain levels of scale of, of property to be successful. Same with nesting. Should nesting be uh, efficient across the landscape in which that quail have habitat or is it segmented? Is it just in certain parts of that habitat where it might be most successful? Well, again, I would ask you to think about this. As you do this action, Are you helping quail or the enemies of quail? Okay. So let's think about uh, a 20 acre area of prime nesting habitat, but everything around it is overgrazed or in cultivation or whatever the case might be. We did a quail appreciation day many years ago over around Sulphur Springs, Texas, and they had 20 acres of nice looking quail country. So we put out these dummy nests, Mm -hmm. artificial simulated nests with chicken eggs about two weeks prior. 
24 of them. On the day of the field day, we go out and we check those to see how many of them remained intact as an index to our nesting success. Zero out Zero. of those 24. Not one made it. Great looking habitat, yes. but it was just a thumbprint there. And so your enemies know what good quail nesting habitat looks like too. And if we don't have it at a larger scale, then again, they're able to focus all their, just like a magnifying glass, you yes. know, being able to concentrate that in a very small area. Do you use some of that dummy nest uh, methodology on the research We do. as well? Uh, we've done that, I guess, for the last seven or eight years, and typically we'll put out 144 dummy nests. Now, I've got student interns. A lot of people wouldn't want to go to it to that extreme, but again, we're interested in good numbers and good replication, experimental design, and so forth. But yes, we'll put those chicken eggs out. Now, we only put three chicken eggs out in a suitable okay. nest. And then uh, we put a steel washer in there. Now, you might say, well, a quail didn't put a steel washer in there. Well, we got to be able to come back out two weeks from now and check that and be able to find which clump of, of uh, silver blue stem, mm -hmm. indeed, did we put that nest in. If the eggs are gone, we don't know. Oh. So we put that washer in there as a cue for us. And if we put out 144 of those, we'll put half of them in prickly pear half of them in grass. So again, to test our hypothesis that prickly pear right. does enhance nesting effort. And uh, that's a wonderful uh, little experiment. It's part of the Texas quail index that we referred to before. It's a wonderful Easter egg hunt kind of an exercise. <laughs> and of the, all the various parts of the quail index, I tell them, if, as a landowner, if you really want to begin to appreciate the dilemmas that a quail faces, do that dummy nest experiment. You can learn a lot from a dummy. It's a premise I work on every day. <laughs> and there's a webisode on our, on our uh, on web page that uh, talks about how to use dummy nests. So, uh, again, it's a, it's a fun activity. Yes. Uh, it causes you to be involved in it. It causes you to be a critical thinker as you look at those and say, wow, I thought we were doing better than that. And sure you begin not. to have a lot more empathy and appreciation for what that quail has to go through. Will that nest from one year be used again the next year or no, are they recreating? Typically not. And again, that wouldn't be a good strategy, That's probably. True. So, uh, no, they, they basically find a new nest every year. Or if uh, one situation that I find kind of odd is let's say we've had a hen right here and she's attempted a nest, but at day 16 of incubation, uh, a, a raccoon finds her nest and destroys the nest. She escapes. That bird will probably move half a mile, maybe a mile away from that spot really? before she re-nests, which I find interesting. Quail are not very mobile species, but it's like, wow, this is a bad neighborhood. I'm going forward to find someplace a little better. And who is after that nest? Uh, that's a pretty long list of who's after that nest um, on the ground. We could, uh, often in a, in a program where I've got 30 or 40 landowners, I'll start right here and we'll go around the table almost twice, you know, because it's it's the mammalian, what we call the mesocarnivores, raccoons, skunks, possums, coyotes, some of those. And then we get into the reptiles, right. your various snakes, bull snakes, coach whips. And then you get into the um, avian bird, right. the avian prey. Right. Crows, ravens, and one that everybody, or I shouldn't say everybody, <laughs> many ranchers love to point out, that being the roadrunner. And we'll talk in another episode about just how bad are roadrunners on quail or not. Fascinating. Uh, June is the month for nesting of quail in Texas, both bobwhite and scaled quail. We hope you have an opportunity to get out and uh, take part in that, observe it, learn from it. Go to the website at quailresearch.org, learn some of the information and great research that Dr. Dale Rollins and his team have completed at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. 
Uh, Dr. Dale, uh, this is a great time of year if you're a student of quail and you love quail because nesting is really where it all begins. That's right, and, and of the various components or variables in what I call the quail equation, nesting is, is very critical, but it's also a very fragile time. And so uh, one of the related questions is, if I've got bird dogs, does it hurt to run my bird dogs during nesting season? I would say it doesn't help. Uh, if you want to keep your bird dogs in shape, and I appreciate that, we'll get a 40-acre Bermuda grass field or something like that, which has basically no potential for quail, as opposed to being out where my quail are nesting at. Because if you disturb those birds, if you disturb them during the first 10 days of incubation, they probably abandon that nest. Is that right? Now, if if you study, if you disturb them day 10 to day 23, two things can happen. One is they'll probably come back because they've got a lot more time invested in it but they're also much more vulnerable to predation. Probably 20% of the time, the hen, if, a, if a nest is depredated by whatever varmint, the hen gets caught too. So it's a double whammy from that standpoint. So I just rec I, I recommend keeping you hands off, kind of a mafia approach to quail <laughs> nesting habitat and letting them have their time, letting them have their peace. We don't do any work on brood counts. Okay. A lot, that's one of the black boxes in, in quaildom is trying to estimate what is the survival of those chicks? From hatching up to say 40 days of age, the best estimates we have are about 40% of the birds. So again, they have those things are like this, very, yes. very, very fragile. Our approach at the Research Ranch has just been give them room. We don't have a good way of measuring that without affecting that. So uh, we just step back and say, we'll count them when they get to be 30 days old or something like that. And uh, we'll, we'll give them their space, you know, just like any new mother, she wants a little bit of time alone kind of thing. Well, this time of year represents hope, doesn't it? It's hope for a, an abundant quail population, and only time will tell. Hope springs eternal in cotton farmers and quail hunters. Thank you, Dr. Dale. That's Dr. Dale Rollins, and we hope you've enjoyed this month's edition of Dr. Dale on Quail. Thank you to all the good folks that continue to give us good comments on our podcast, and thanks to the good folks at the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service for their support and their efforts. We hope you join us next month as we continue our discussion of quail in Texas on Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.